Welcome back, friends. Misty Dykema here, leading what I hope to be another thought-provoking discussion with an amazingly talented marketer and someone I've admired for quite some time, Executive Vice President and General Manager of the Equipment Division at Randall Riley, Prescott Scheibels. For those that may not know Randall Riley, the company began as a publishing house for magazine brands including Overdrive and Equipment World, targeting trucking, construction, and driver recruiting markets. Samael has worked with these media brands for quite some time as we serve the heavy industry market. Yet, as Randall Riley evolves, several strategic acquisitions of databases such as EDA, which includes heavy equipment financing data, led the company to become so much more. Today, Randall Riley helps its clients drive growth strategies to these same market segments by providing targeted platforms to reach the audiences they've become uniquely equipped to understand. Prescott, leader of the equipment side of the business, is a force to be reckoned with. He'll share his background, and you'll come to see that he is a real unicorn, like so many this season. His passion for data, content, and marketing started early and kept growing. He is a learner with a passion for his work, and I think you'll be excited by some of his latest endeavors. Even if you're not a heavy industry marketer, there's something here to get you thinking. I'd love to have you jump right in and give us a little bit of background about you, um, your background in the publishing industry, and kind of how you got to where you are today. Okay. Out of the marketing sweats, gang. I'm <laughs> Prescott Shivels, and I lead a team of heavy equipment marketing experts in Randall Riley's equipment division. Prior to joining Randall Riley, I was a haagen franchisee, an off-Broadway producer. I was an editor as well, and a chief digital officer for two B2B media companies. Wow, that's crazy. So how'd you make your way to Randall Riley? So first visit to Randall Riley was in 2003, and I was working for Prime Media. And I got a tour of the Charlotte office, the, data, the EDA division. And I was amazed. We were yeah. coming down to partner, but it turns out our COO kind of like wanted to see if we could reverse engineer the process. And the things that they do in in that department are magic. Tell people about that, because I think our listeners might not realize what EDA does and how it's all connected. So EDA is like the polk of heavy equipment. But in vehicle registration, it's really easy. You have VIN lookups, and that VIN, each letter means something different. It's pretty easy to decode that. UCC filings, you get like a big blurb of text. So there's like the top half is who's who's buying or leasing the thing, who's right. loaning the money and wants to put a lien on the collateral. And then the bottom half is just this mosh pit of words. <laughs> okay. And we walk people through, uh, our data team basically goes through a process where they highlight and write on paper. We print it out and they've got to oh. circle the serial numbers, correct the brands. And we have people who've been with us for 30 years who mm -hmm repair the data. So they will spot it and say, oh, that serial number isn't right. Or, oh, that they've misclassified the piece of equipment based on the serial number. I can, I can tell that that's wrong based on the description. So there's a tremendous amount. I think, I think we're about 1.4 million units processed a year. That's crazy. So to summarize, for those that don't know, EDA is essentially a division of Randall Riley that handles all the UCC filings for heavy equipment purchases. Is that correct? Agriculture, construction, machine tools, a couple other industries. We process about 20% of the data and we have a lot more. Sometimes people come yeah. and ask us for, for what's in the, what's in the bank. 
<laughs> right, right. Well, and talk about how that for you when you say you're amazed was is such an interesting business model in the sort of publishing world to be able to have access to that information that informs so much about the customer base that you're ultimately trying to serve with your publications and information. So to me, what's exciting about it is when you have transaction level detail, you see patterns in behavior. So most of the use cases that people have today are more market share related or they look for lost business. They use us for lead gen as well on the digital side and a little bit on the data side, but a lot of the use case is very transactional oriented. What we're okay. really starting to do now is look at transactions next to one another. So you're not only informing the persona of the user and have tools to sort of dig in at the individual and company level, but then you're consulting with your clients to develop strategies that impact the patterns you're seeing, it sounds like. Yes. Brand loyalty <laughs> is pretty interesting. So I got really, where we got down to this was the last presidential election, the primaries. Okay. Ted Cruz won, was it Iowa or Wisconsin, by focusing on 9,000 voters. Wow. They had a wow. profile of these swayable people that if they could get them to vote Cruz instead of Trump, he would win that area. So the idea of using data to create a, a segmentation strategy and then identify what were the characteristics of what you were looking for got us really obsessed about identifying swayable buyers. So what you're talking about is not only using the data to sort of diagnose the situation, but predict where things are going to go in the future to make smart buying decisions in media and otherwise, right? Yes. And we've even developed predictive models to say who's going to be in market. Yeah. If I can tell that you're highly likely to buy right. and that you're highly swayable, I should put a lot of marketing spend there. If I know that you're highly likely to buy and you're very loyal to my brand, I probably want to reinforce that a little bit, but I don't need to spend as much to convince you. But I, I, I do want to at least be aware from a retention standpoint that you're a sure. priority account. Okay, so I'm going to dig into that as we go through this conversation today, but I want to back you up for a minute yep. because we kind of glossed over your background. Okay. So. How do you go from franchisee interest in the creative side to you see EDA, you are a data guy at heart? I mean, every time I hear you speak, Prescott, you're sort of on the cutting edge of some of these sort of data models. Where's your passion lie and how did you sort of fuel your career at Randall Riley through that? Passion has always been the nexus of tech and marketing. If you want to know what a marketing nerd I am, first computer at age nine at IBM PC Jr., at age 13, I asked for Prodigy, which was oh my like the late 80s internet. It wasn't okay. the internet, but it was like a closed system. And I started tracking my dad's stocks. That was the deal. Like, I'll get you this, oh, cool. this service, but you're going to give me my portfolio every day. So then okay. I picked my own portfolio and mine outperformed his. And so then I got to invest a little bit. And then I used that money to for my first big marketing experiment, which was at age 17, my brother, who was 15, and I opened a Huggins franchise in 93. Wow. Yes. And um, got a job at about.com in yeah. 1999, which was at the time the fifth largest website on the web. So hmm. my data fix got started in web analytics. Got it. And so I used content strategy to help them grow their traffic, which helped them grow their income. We got in five best of the web awards from Forbes through awesome. data-driven content strategy. 
That is so cool. You are quite the unicorn. You've got all these different weird skills that come together. I think it probably annoys people sometimes and, and excites people other times. I could play in a lot of places, but it also means I have a lot of opinions. But at about, it was great. So out of editorial, got to work on Luna, which was an ad network. One of the you know, first ad networks ever launched. So before programmatic was a, a, even a word, we were thinking about how to bring targeted advertising at scale. And so my first background on learning the business side of, of digital media was Luna. Okay. And about whole strategy was contextual targeting. Mm-hmm. So, and they used a really robust taxonomy to do that. So the first phase of competing with Overture and Google in the cost per click market, or even in the display market was contextual and taxonomy related. Okay, I got to pause you there because taxonomy is not a question I had on my list for you. But the fact that you're talking about content strategy and taxonomy, explain to our users or listeners why that is such an important topic still today. Knowing what someone's looking at or what they're interested in is a much more powerful trigger than knowing who they are or what their persona might be. So search is a trigger, but browsing behavior is a trigger. And if you can distill a page of content down to a known topic or theme, Mm -hmm. that's now a trigger where you know that person's interested in something, especially for the next 48 hours. Right. And so the language they're using, right? And so what what they're calling things as a marketer, you better understand that so that you can marry your content strategy to support it, right? That's exactly right. It's such a hot topic for our agency right now. So I appreciate you going there because it's hard work, right? To get that taxonomy down and get alignment around what we're going to call things and what our customers call things. So It is one of the most important things that you can do. And after you start doing it, it's one of the hardest things to change after the fact. Well, I keep interrupting you, Prescott, but I think that we're uncovering some of the things that I think is so amazing about Randall Riley, and we've partnered together for years, but I, I don't think people always fully understand as a publishing company, as a data company, how to sort of pull on all you guys' expertise. You know, you're, it's not just for media buying. And so that's why I think all of your insights are so interesting today to kind of bring to the forefront. Yeah. I mean, we are a little bit unique in the way that we work with folks. I think the thing that makes me most passionate is we we want to be valuable. So we like to work with other people and we're not just trying to push something. We're trying to have a positive impact. So after Luna, then what? Got to work on Sprinks. Sprinks was a contextual cost per click network, which Google bought and became okay. Google AdSense. Oh, okay. So the you asked me to kind of draw the line of like, how did I get into audience stuff? Right. That's the essence of it. Those two projects. About gets acquired by Prime Media, which owned mm-hmm. 17, Modern Bride, American Baby, New York Magazine. And I got put into Prime Media Business, which owned okay. National Hog Farmer, American City and County, Waste Age. You move from B2C to B2B pretty quickly through that transition? Yes. Okay. And so we struggled a little bit out of the gate. It was early recession time. And I learned my first lesson about marketing, and the importance of staying on top of things. We got wiped out on on a reorg, layoffs left, right, and center. And the thing that saved my job was SEO. 
We went from one and, really? a, one and a half million to six million page views. There were not a lot of people in the B2B division that knew that. So right. scarcity of skill set and being sure. and the disruptive nature of the new stuff was like the essence of how I kept my job. Not the rest of the stuff, not my brain, not my, you know, it was just that one thing. So I became obsessed with, all right, I'm already into marketing and tech and what's new and what's hot, but I'm never going to miss a disruptive technology again. Like I really want to be obsessed about it. Yeah, well, that's such a great story. We talk so much in our business about sort of growing outwardly and the best way to grow up the marketing ladder is to just be a learner and absorb every single thing around you. And so it sounds like that dovetails with kind of your point of view as well. What are some of the clients doing today that seem super successful? Like maybe it points back to that story you were telling me about, you know, using the data to be predictive or what are some of the more innovative things that you're seeing your clients do these days? So we're doing a lot of geofencing. So for those of you who may not be familiar with it, you can literally draw a radius around a building, a parking lot very accurately and identify people who've been in that in that radius. Right. Even in COVID, they they circled like South Beach, you know, here's all the spring breakers and here's where they went afterwards. Right. You can use that same technology. You can you can target anyone who's been in that area. Right. We can put a radius around a dealer location and put a radius around all these buyer locations. And we can tell how many of these buyers have hit a dealer location. The ones that get the creative right, that get the, the segmentation and the how to how to message people they can see like dealer visits at 35 to 50 dollars a visit an in-person visit that's crazy and then with our data you can actually track whether or not that that company bought in the next 120 days or not interesting so obviously that's a huge use case for our customer base. Talk about how you work with agencies in that process to partner with them to sort of ideate around these solutions when you segment and get the message right is the, where the magic happens. What we do is we understand segmentation really, really well. And we can understand what's happening in the market really, really well from our research. Right. So when we work with an agency, I think part of when the partnership really works at its best, we know our data better than anybody else does. Sure. So if you come to us with, we're trying to do this, we can come up with really great ideas about how to segment and help craft right. those personas. Here are the triggers. Right. Here are the, the ways in which they cluster. Where we don't get into is we don't do creative. But that's kind of the, what I see is the yin-yang of it. Totally. And I know um, in years past, we've had, you know, subscriptions to your EDA database and just partnering with you guys on the use cases of how to query the data and do that data mining and data matching and activating on the data. It's been super fun. So for anybody who doesn't work with you in that way, I would highly encourage it. We still haven't gotten to your role today. So talk about your job and sort of how you spend your time, I guess. So uh, it's changed a lot in the last year. A lot of what I do now is really trying to, how do we reimagine what our mission or vision is and how do we align to make sure that we're impactful there? I love that. Talk to me about that. So how are you reimagining your vision? 
mission-wise, we want to simplify how people buy, sell, finance, and maintain equipment. And we want our vision for where we get to is to become the essential equipment sales and marketing partner by using data and content to accelerate measurable sales outcomes. That's a great vision. I saw that you had that measurable sales outcomes thing or that attributable to sales piece. So being able to take what you guys do and tie it back to your customers' data has got to be part of that conversation, right? Yes, definitely a theme of integration, you know, for the next five years, for sure. Right. But you were about ready to tell me that ties to inventory, right? Yes. So both equipment inventory and parts inventory. So we're working on a whole bunch of stuff around moving actual equipment sales much quicker. Some of that is through augmenting our data in the trucking space. Some of that is through being able to, you know, do more dynamic advertising solutions with inventory in it. And we're also working on the parts side where we're having tremendous success with Facebook shopping campaigns, 15 times marketing return sometimes. You know, I always find the part side of the business a little bit easier, right? Because there's an e-commerce model tied to it or something else. But like the the heavy equipment, connecting systems with dealers and getting access to data and so that you can do that closed group reporting that clients want to hear about ROI on their marketing spend. So wade me through some of that muck because I know that's very much our world and like how you guys are finding success in that process. On the EDA side in ag and construction, we have a good amount of that reporting already. In agriculture, we might have as much as 80% of equipment captured in our data set. Construction, it's more like 60. So we're at least able to kind of say, here is activity that we've seen afterwards. It's not all of the activity that's happened afterwards. Right. We started working on predictive stuff last uh, in the past two years. And our first product that really gets at that and measures the impact of that was Priority Prospects. We put a web beacon on your website. If a company triggers our 5% most likely to buy, we will flag it, give you a give you the likelihood to buy and an NEDA profile. And then we Got put it. the reporting in place to say who actually bought. Yeah. So is there a unique ID tied to that user? So we do it at the account level because of privacy stuff. We want to make sure that we're doing companies, not not people. Even if sometimes right. people are companies, we're still right. viewing that entity, that household as the as the buyer. That's awesome. I know some of those parent-child relationships are some of the most difficult conversations we're having with clients today. And so yes. it sounds like you guys are too. Yes. And uh, we've done a lot to try and invest in our data management in order to help with some of that householding stuff. Yeah, definitely. Well, since you brought up Facebook, I mean, obviously, that's such a powerful channel. Um, You guys are able to take your audience and their audience and combine to really get to the heart of that. But kind of a not so fun topic I wanted to explore with you today is this issue of data privacy in those spaces. So many of our clients are saying, gosh, we love the Facebook lead ads or, you know, want to do the same thing on LinkedIn. But then who owns that data and the whole owner controller processor conversation comes into play. So as a company that is managing so much data and a lot of PII, how are you guys, what sort of processes are you putting in place and how are you advising your clients on that? I mean, thematically, the, the first thing is we, we did invest in software to help manage our data differently and to have more governance in place. And I think CCPA really forced a lot of people to get their house in order. So I, I think that 
merely getting the act of preparing for that does does a lot there. Two, we have spent a lot more time making sure that our sourcing is easier to get at. So okay. what, what was the source of the data? What was the original source of the data? And I think sometimes people, for publishers, it's pretty easy. Like we've always had this, we call a lot of people. We have campaign or promo codes associated with each campaign. And then we had an original promo code where, where the, where the name originally come from. But for mm-hmm. a lot of marketers, that may not have been as as much part of their DNA. I want to understand. So I actually went out because, you know, I, I love James um, Vogel from your organization. as the, He's the vice president of acquisition diligence and integration. So mm-hmm. is that part of what you're talking about here is like when you get a customer name, you have a really sort of rigorous way of like knowing where they came from and, and treating it with some level of diligence? Or how does that work? We've got UCC data. USDOT census data, FMCSA data, circulation data, newsletter data. The circulation data often comes from list brokers as well. So we call those people rent lists and we want to be able to track which of those vendors are more effective for us than others. Sure. And then we requalify those people. So we call them back even a year later and ask them to confirm their information. So all of that needs to be tracked. And each time you touch that person, you're collecting data on them again, right? That campaign has a name associated with it, but you want to store the original source of that record as well so that you have kind of all of your stuff organized. Right, right. So you said software was key. So talk about the tech stack that helps you guys do this. We made our first like big boy purchase. We got Informatica, which is legit Gartner high-end stuff that is a was a really big part of our strategy was we wanted to invest in data hygiene and quality we've always been known for it but we don't want to get beat there yeah yeah well you know our business we're, we're pretty heavy into marketing automation and so every conversation starts with data and data hygiene like what data do you have and is it clean right So I think all of us are trending in that direction. We're certainly not at that level, but it's exciting to hear that you are. I know I sent you some thoughts um, in terms of different directions this conversation could go. And I feel like your job is so big and so on the cutting edge of so many different aspects of digital marketing. So what other things are hot for you guys right now? Like, you know, you mentioned a little bit of social stuff, a little bit of search. Like, what are you most excited about? I think the the biggest stuff is applying our predictive models to account based okay. marketing. Okay. That was one of my questions. I think that the industry right now is sort of hot and cold in account based marketing. So mm-hmm. walk us through sort of what's good about it and what is maybe not the right use case to think about ABM. So ABM really blossomed under tech where you have a lot of companies that buy tech and a lot of competition for voice the C is much bigger and you need to find a way to demonstrate success a little bit differently. When you apply it the same way to more targeted and niche markets, you've got to think through how is your challenge different than tech challenges? Because most of the SaaS providers out there were targeting startups or marketing companies for tech companies and all dealing with that issue of the ocean's so big, how do I make an impact that my CFO, CEO, CMO, 
VP of sales believes or buys into. Right. That makes good sense. I never thought of that or realized that's how it got started. My about days, I, I always follow the tech <laughs> scene over there. Uh, right. I'm a little bit obsessed, but bringing it here, it becomes about what's your strategy? What is the segment of the market that you're looking for? And understanding that multiple people right now influence a decision. There's not sure. a decision maker. There's there's a group. I mean, we're a smallish company under under 500 employees and our email service provider meetings had like 15 people in them. Right. Those 15 people made a lot of the influence the decision-making process a great deal. If you were targeting just me or just someone else in like a CRM deployment, you wouldn't have gotten any of those other people who are much more closer to that transaction than I was. Right. Well, and I think that for most small to mid-sized businesses, this idea of sort of land and expand within an organization is like the exact sort of use case for when ABM makes sense. When you know your segment, you know your target. But what the pushback I'm hearing more recently is that ABM is almost too broad of an, a segmentation strategy, that there's so much now data and personalization available that you can sort of leverage that to think about orchestrating interactions with users at a more granular level than even ABM can provide. So what would you say to that? There is a ton of personalization stuff that's out there, but a lot of that's really tailored to consumer. I mean, I don't know what your experience like with that is, but a lot of when you peel back the onion on, on a lot of that stuff, that technology is based on pulling things off the social graph or you know identifying what interests that you have or things of that nature. It's the same reason why... If you think about lookalike modeling with Facebook, mm-hmm. it's like the opposite of that. I'm gonna, I'm going to take this small group and try to model what people should look off of that. Right. That's the same technology that's being used now to personalize content. Right. If I take a list of ten thousand dealers and I put a lookalike model on that, I'm gonna get NASCAR fans. I'm gonna. Get, <laughs> I'm not gonna get dealers per se. Sure. So. I think a lot of that sounds really good in practice. I mean, in in theory, but in practice, I'm not so sure that some of the tech that's behind it creates those breakthrough elements. Yeah. Well, and I think technology is not going to solve for the content issue or the data issue. So this idea of personalization sounds great, but you have there's a lot that goes with it. So, well, since you're excited about account-based marketing, help us drill down to give us like more of a pragmatic, practical example of how somebody's doing that well today, sort of integrating your data, but then also your platforms, maybe. A couple examples that I that I would call out first would be we're in interesting economic times. Sure. So first-time buyers are going to be a little bit less inclined to pull the trigger than repeat buyers. So being able to target more explicitly, instead of casting a net into 2 million construction entities, if you're able to attack the 50,000 that are highly likely to buy and apply it, target those accounts rather than trying to target a audience of people per se, right, right. you're going to have a lot more impact than you would targeting the 2 million or an audience slice. Right. How are you so, working with companies, though, on the sales side? Because it's one thing to have a targeted marketing strategy within an account, but 
you know, using like, I know, don't you guys partner with LinkedIn and other channels to help with like the relationship building piece of it? So I wouldn't say that that we do nearly as much on the nurturing side of things. We could get a lot better over there. And I think part of what I think we have an opportunity to do is through our media brands kind of expose who's interested in certain subjects. We've done some things where we've created down, downloadable content assets that are really good points of genesis for a marketing automation path. Sure. But we don't have the marketing automation yeah. aspects to it. So well, we great, should work on that. A great, a great that. handoff. <laughs> a great right. handoff point. That's Absolutely. Right. That's cool. What is the thing you're working on that's sort of fastest growth? Since I know you're sort of product and platform focused, like what are you excited to launch into the universe right now? When is this going to go live? <laughs> Not until, gosh, probably late May. So can mm. you give me a teaser? No. <laughs> uh, we got we have one really big one. It's it's pretty big, but I can't talk about it right now. All right. All right. Well, I'll have uh, to circle back and have you on or something. In general, I, I think that outside of that product, the looking at attribution stuff is is where we're spending a lot of time and get and seeing a lot of success where we're, we're getting the most account growth is where we're able to come back and say, here are the transactions. Here are the companies that we targeted here. Here's how many of them bought. Here's how much they bought. Okay. So I got to dig into attribution just a little bit with you here because we have lots of clients asking us, I think it's going to be the CMO's challenge of the future. And we've been having a conversation internally that in order to develop an attribution model, Um, you really have to know what your goal is, right? And so there's channel attribution, there's all kinds of different sort of models, but talk to us about how you're consulting with your clients about thinking about attribution and then getting the pipes in place to do so. So I, I think a lot of it comes down to being able to set a benchmark. What's your wallet share today with your customer base? What's your market share in the industry and how do you envision growing that? You know, testing that hypothesis. Does that work out or not? When we went going back to that example of swayables, what we can see is that someone might get 0.7% of the market share of someone who's loyal to a comp- competitor brand. They're going to get a real strong market share, you know, much more market share than they, they have in the overall market, the folks that are loyal to them. But targeting expanded growth in the swayable buyer set is really a great opportunity. It's like the independent voter or what it used to be you know, when right. people actually were independents. Yeah. Well, you're talking about it in the terms of market share or share of wallet. And I think that that's at least a key metric that organizations can rally around. They may not have that baseline research done, but by working with a partner like you who has access to all this data across all the brands, you can help them get sort of a baseline in place. Pick a cohort, establish a benchmark, did your account-based marketing strategy or that the way you're targeting, whatever you're using tech-wise to hit that cohort, did it move the needle or not? Right. Unfortunately, the concept of somebody championing that customer experience or that share of wallet or that loyalty metric, whatever it is for the various organizations, sometimes it's just not there or people don't want to commit to the benchmark. Do you experience that too? Yes. I mean, <laughs> we, we use OGSM at Randall Riley, or at least in our division, for kind of laying out our strategy and our initiatives that build towards achieving it. OGSM is objective, goal, strategy, and measure. 
And so your goals and your measures are, are metrics. Picking those things is like a bear. And I think perfect is the enemy of good. Get to something that you would feel good about. Yeah. No, I think that's true. And we always have, you know, goal setting conversations, but a lot of times they get glossed over, but then people want to measure it on the back end. So I think your point is very valid. Like, let's just commit to something and then we iterate from there, right? This just doesn't have to be the end all be all. Well, I had so many topics I wanted to get to, Prescott. Are there other things that you wanted to share today about what you guys are doing that you think is just really important for our audience to know? There's a couple of things that we are really trying to wrap our brains around, which is we're mapping out both our client experience and our, you know, our customers, their, their, their clients. We refer to our readership as our customers and our, the people who pay us as our clients. Okay. So we see a real challenge in the marketplace that's going on about how people buy equipment. If you look at how people shop, and we've done a lot of research on it, like how they gather information right now, the amount of research they're doing online before they talk to a salesperson is enormous. Like three quarters of it is of the buyer journey is done by the time you're talking to sales. The buyer wants to educate themselves. The buyer has to go to like five different places to educate themselves. I'm going to go to the OEM website. I'm going to go to the dealer site. I'm going to go to some kind of trader website or classifieds website, listing website. When they get to the point where they're starting to evaluate all of the things that they're looking at, no one's putting the buyer's needs up front right now. And that's why turn isn't improving. You've heard of FOMO, right? Fear of missing out? Sure. Our heavy equipment buyer community has FOBA. What's that? Fear of better alternative. Okay. You go to, you go, you do all this research, you keep figuring out, you figure out, okay, I need this piece of equipment. Then you go and you look and you find thousands of pieces of equipment, very little differentiation about one from the other. And so that, that buyer sees the same equipment listed at a whole bunch of very different price points, but it's a, it's a very large range without the ability to see why. And so they then start making phone calls. Then the phone calls that they make, half the time the equipment that's listed isn't actually available. And most of the time they're going to voicemail. And so this experience is so herky-jerky and difficult that when they finally get to the point where they're ready to pull the trigger, they are thinking, well, this looks like a good deal, but if I just wait a little bit longer, I might see a better deal. Sure. And so there's an incentive to delay the decision, which damages the, the dealer and OEM community. Like it's right. taking you longer to, to close a deal because of that particular issue. And I don't think that enough people are focusing on that buyer journey. So what are you guys going to do about it? You've obviously identified a gap in the market. There's a, there's a lot <laughs> that our data can really do to inform and help that. I bet. Uh, I bet. We have tr- the Rig Dig Truck History Report. Sure. We've got UCC where we're, we're working on uh, an equipment history report where right. we could actually see the previous owners. Was it beat up at a mine or was it in an easier easier use case? It was it by an owner or a leasing company? You know, sure. how, was it a rental company? So we're working on a lot of tools that come out there and we're working on a lot of 
hygiene tools. One of the coolest things that we've seen is that we sit on all this data. We have the equipment guide, spec guide. We've got all the UCC data. We've got the top ed serial number guide, which is basically a VINDA code for equipment. Right. So we're trying to create some tools to help people really start to create better buyer experiences. Sure, sure. Sort of at the middle stage of the journey, right? So you're doing all this research, you have access to all that information, and then bringing them more of a place to compare, because I know that's a big sort of touch point. We already do a lot of reviews. We already have spec guides. So we're, we're working on creating some solutions for dealers that would help di- showcase or differentiate their equipment. That's awesome. I love that. What else was on your list? (laughs) I could ask you all day. Are those the big ones? Yeah. I mean, I I think most of all those are, those are the big ones. I I would say to, to you and other agencies that the other thing that we are looking for more feedback on is how we can be better partners to you guys. Um, A lot of the, the tech stack that we're, set up with or operating with, you know, right. how can we extend some of those capabilities and become a little bit more integrated and automated? Absolutely. You guys are also great event marketers. You you and I exchanged some emails even over the past month of how important that's going to be in this era of working remotely. So that's a big focus for you guys too, of helping your clients put on events. We have taken the CCJ symposium virtual. Yeah. And I, I actually am really excited about uh, what's going on on events. The the last time we went through this, like I was at Penton during SARS. So right. it's now in format, like very big trade show company. And the tech at that point in time was like that weird, awkward second life kind of tech where it was like, I'm, <laughs> here's my booth and I'm right. sitting here with a avatar of myself meeting you and how right. are you? Um, <laughs> And we spent a lot of time really trying to distill what that event experience is. Okay. It's peer sharing. It's relationship building. It's solving problems. So we've been spending a lot of time distilling our events, not just down to speakers and attendees, but trying to create opportunities like you're seeing on the consumer side of things. Right. Right. People are going to, you know, club quarantine yeah, and having a shared experience. I've got friends that are playing Cards of Humanity over Zoom. There's the tech to be able to create personal relationships out of a virtual event. And we're really committed to trying to create those more intimate experiences. Absolutely. Well, you have shared so much knowledge with us today, and and the theme of this season is about possibilities. Um, And so certainly working with Randall Riley, I would say from a very personal perspective, you guys aren't a media buying company to us. You have brought so many possibilities to bear, not only for us, but for our clients. But I guess as we round out our conversation today, I want to learn more about you as a person and how your, you know, personal passions have fueled sort of the way you work, the way you lead. So what are some words of wisdom you'd leave from us from sort of your core truths, if you will? My whole MO, I think, for my career has always been opportunity and then persistence. I forget the actual quote. My dad had it on the side of his office frame. It was a Calvin Coolidge. Nothing in the world can take the place of persistence. Talent will not. Nothing is more common than unsuccessful men with talent. Genius will not. Unrewarded genius is almost a proverb. And education will not. The, the world is full of educated derelicts. <laughs> Persistence and determination are alone omnipotent. 
the slogan press on is always solved and will always solve the problems of the human race. Wow. When you're trying to blaze trails, sure. you have setbacks. Yeah, absolutely. And so character and persistence are what gets you through. So one of the cool things about our culture at Randall Riley is that character is a really important part of what we do. Yes. So our corporate mission is to propel people to their best selves. I love that. Our Monday morning meetings, every anniversary is celebrated with a character first recognition where we recognize someone for the character that they exhibit. That's amazing. And we really focus on character because character is not talent. They're things that you, you work to, to create in yourself. Yeah. And I think for us, one of the really great things about our company, our culture is that we value character a great deal. I think so too. And having met each of you individually, you all have a lot of character, but your company does too. I think those Monday morning meetings, tell people about that real quick. Cause I think that's so neat how you run those. And they've gone virtual. We have 300 people on a, on a zoom now. It's wow. really amazing. But every Monday morning when we're not in self social distancing mode, <laughs> each office has a meeting locally. Mm-hmm. And we start off with recognitions of the of just anyone. So anyone who who did something, you know, wants to recognize the contribution of another associate, we do recognitions and announcements. Right. Then we do short character first. So if you have a one year anniversary or uh, or like two year or three year, a non pivotal year, right? You get a short character first. And then if it's your one year or five year or 10 year anniversary, you get a big character first with a caricature. So you, cool. you, you get a caricature drawn yeah. up, hung up on the wall. You get recognized for a character quality and someone gives about a 20 minute speech about you. That's amazing. And don't you guys also sing a song together? That is, <laughs> that is Tuscaloosa. Oh, okay. That is not part of the Charlotte tradition. Um, there, there definitely is some singing that goes on out there. For a while, there was hugging when Mike was there too. Um, right, but no, we don't. We don't have a a song or a cheer <laughs> in, in Charlotte. Right. Well, you guys just have such neat cultural tradition. So I appreciate you sharing that. Any last words? I mean, one of the thing, ways I like to end these discussions is, you know, w- what's a question you have on your mind right now that I might be able to pass on to someone else? We're really de- reliant upon a whole set of technology for targeting right now that is about to be irrelevant third-party cookies. Yeah. What are people doing or thinking about in order to learn from that? I see a lot of people trying to figure out here's a substitute for that. Sure. Which is only going to get you down the road again before people eliminate that. I mean, for a while you had, Apple advertiser IDs or Google advertiser IDs. And then those got taken away and were replaced with something else. And at some point, what is the long-term situation to scale and privacy? Yes, I agree. That's a great question. One of the things I hope to do on the other side of these conversations is to create more conversations. So when we share your, your podcast interview, we'll definitely put that out there and see what kinds of ideas people have. I love it. 
And then the other big question I have is how do you measure the value of content and content creators? Why is that on your mind, Prescott? It always is. I, as an editor, mm-hmm. like part of what I, we just got off, we just won four out of six Neil Awards that we were nominated for. Our editorial team is amazing. They are. But once a year, the award season comes around, and everybody goes and claps and, you know, but how do we, as media, or even as you're building out your own content marketing group, yeah, there's a vast difference between terrible content and great content. Right. And everybody thinks they can do content. Right. So being able to say to your CFO, your CMO, your why this freelancer, why this writer, why this person is so valuable and advocating for them in a way where you're allowing them to grow both from an income perspective, but from a career perspective, it's always really challenging. Like I walk into the boardroom every year and it's like, why are we in print? Right. And maybe not everybody else will talk about that conversation happening Right. You know, I'm, I'm sure that every, every, every B2B publisher has that same question from their private equity company and even the ones that aren't held by private equity. But it's hard to be able to describe the value of good content versus mediocre or bad content. Yes. I didn't so, want to go there with you today because I feel like that's such a trite question of why are we still in print? You know, like there's still a place for it. And to your point, like the content that comes out of the editorial group is, is so valuable in so many platforms. But I find that most of the conversations I'm a part of today are so focused on technology and data and pipes that the content conversation is getting left behind and it needs to catch up. So it sounds like you're on the same page. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the hard thing about all of that is when I was at uh, a previous company, we did a campaign for a, it was Parker Hannafin. Okay. And they were trying to talk about how their stuff was more easily integrated with other stuff. Okay. I'm trying to put it as simply as possible. Sure, sure. We're working with Wise, the agency out of of Cleveland. Okay. And we just simply turned it on its head and didn't talk about that stuff at all. We talked about, we took a survey of food manufacturing companies and ask them how much time they spent with line changeovers. We ask them how, how much an, an hour you make your food line production. And then we calculated how much revenue was lost mm. from line changeovers and did a video and a white paper and a, and talk just not about the interconnectivity of the tech, but of the business issue, which was that this thing was costing people massive amounts of money. It was the highest performing campaign that they had seen that year at that agency. Yeah, that's a great. And the dude that came up with that concept was an editor. Yeah. Well, and it's not just the business issues. I'm having more conversations now about, and I think I even put this in my note to you, getting away from product marketing and focusing on the platform of the organization. We've had some interviews this season that talk about that. So your company's great at figuring out what those platforms are with your brand clients. Everybody seems to want to get into platforms and recurring revenue. Like that's like the two, you know, (laughs) how can I sell service as a a subscription or parts of the subscription or razor blades? Yeah. But yeah. yeah. 
Interesting. All right. Well, I've taken up enough of your time, Preska. It's so good to reconnect with you. I do hope that we can get back together face-to-face again soon. I love coming to your Randall Riley events and learning from all your people and just spending some good quality time together. We love having you there and um, fingers crossed. Hope you get get back into the office soon and hope you guys stay safe. All right. Well, thanks again for your time. We'll Thank talk you soon. so much. Ms. All right. Bye. I loved hearing about Prescott's latest efforts to leverage data science and analytics to help his clients predict where to go next. And his thoughts on account-based marketing to influence heavy equipment decisions will most certainly lead me to have another conversation. But beyond the marketing speak, I just love the culture of Randall Riley. Before COVID-19, my partner Tim and I would make it a point to travel to Tuscaloosa, Alabama each year to visit these guys, and I can't wait to get back. They're just good people. If you want to know more about Prescott's work, you can visit RandallRiley.com, where you can learn all about their data, media, and marketing solutions. If you're in one of the industries they serve, their resource library and webinars alone are well worth the visit. Thanks again for listening, friends. As always, please visit marketingsweats.com where you can download all of our season two episodes and connect with me, Misty Dykema, to learn more about our show and our agency, Symantle. If you like the show, give us a review and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And of course, check back regularly for more real life accounts for hardworking marketing pros. We'll talk soon. Thank you.